0: Hello, and welcome to Franklin Covey's Weekly on Leadership series. My name is Scott Miller, and I have the honor each week of serving as your host, where my main role here is to really help to curate people we think you'll find interesting, that will add value to your life, personally and professionally, Read their books, research their point of view, and then bring them on set, live in some cases, or live virtual in most cases. And today our guest is, gosh, about a 15-year friend of mine, Chester Elton. He's the co-author of numerous best-selling books, including this most recent book, The Best Teams Win, The Science of High Performance. Chester Elton, welcome to Franklin Covey's On Leadership.
1: Thanks so much, Scott. Always a delight to be with you.
0: Chester, I think having you and I in the same set physically would be like probably wrong because our energy is so high. So we only asked you to come via video because the set can't probably contain both your and my energy.
1: (laughs) I think you're right. You know, I think we want to avoid that spontaneous combustion thing (laughs) that could very well happen.
0: Chester, you and I have been friends for, like I said, almost 15 years. Ironically, you and I both presented at a conference in Beijing, China, back in the early... In fact, I have learned a lesson. You always want to go before Chester because the audience will forget you if you go after Chester. That's some advice to anybody who's on stage with you. Always precede Chester.
1: Well, you're very kind. It was a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun in China, no doubt about it. It was, and I've followed your
0: career for the last 15 years. You and your partner, business partner, Adrian, have written many best-selling books. You are a world-renowned authority on employee engagement and culture, high-performance teams, rewards the difference between awards and rewards and retention. I wonder if you take a couple of moments to kind of level set for our audience, your journey, kind of where you started, how your expertise has developed and evolved over the years, and maybe remind some of our our audience listeners and viewers some of the books that you and your partner, Adrian, have authored over the years.
1: Sure, sure. You know, I get that question a lot because, you know, I, I grew up in sales. So I you know, sold media time, my family, we grew up in radio stations up in Canada and so on. And I took a job with uh, OC Tanner, a reward and recognition company. Was there for 19 years and loved, loved that association, loved that industry. Well, I had this idea and I called our, our then CEO, Kent Murdoch at the time. And I said, hey Kent, you know, if, if we became the thought leaders in our industry, then you would make my life as a salesperson a lot easier. People would call us for advice instead of me having to cold call everybody. And thought leaders, write; they write books. And no one has written the definitive book on employer recognition. What do you think? And he goes, hey, I love that idea. Write the book. And I said, well, can't, what I, when I said we should write the book, I meant you should write the book and then I should benefit from that book. You, know, you give me these crushing quotas and I, who's got time to write a book? And he said something that changed everything. He said, you know what, Chester, you're a smart guy. Figure it out so for about a year i played with ideas and titles and chapter heads and kent called me back and said look i've hired a new vp of communications his name is adrian Gostick. he's a writer you've got the context get together write the book and so we did we introduced ourselves uh, to each other at a sales conference down in florida and uh, he grew up in canada i grew up in canada so we had that hockey thing you know in common and uh, a year later we dropped a book on kent Murdoch's desk called Managing with carrots—it was all about recognition and, and case studies—and he was—he was really funny. He said, "I love being CEO. You just say stuff, and it happens." <laughs> and that's where it started. We—we we didn't know what we didn't know. It was a little publisher out of Layton, Utah, called Gibbs Smith that wanted to start a, a business division that gave us our first break, and we sold like thirty-five thousand copies. Yeah. And we thought if you didn't sell, you know, ten million, like Good to Great or Seven Habits, you were nobody. Fact is, most Harvard Business School books, you know, they sell right six to eight thousand copies. So we had a hit, and so we wrote. After that, we wrote uh, the Twenty Four Carat Manager, and then a Carrot a Day, and you sort of get the theme of carrots and orange, which is our favorite color. And then we wrote the Carrot Principle, which really we wrote that with Simon and Schuster. which became kind of our our best-selling, you know, foundational book on when you reward and recognize people, how good things happen. How do you do that, and what's the research and the science behind it? And then once we'd kind of explored that, we 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 took a deep dive on culture. We said, you know, if you don't get the culture right, the recognition doesn't matter. And that's when we wrote, you know, all in how the best managers create that culture of belief that drive big results. And and we got into more the umbrella of culture, of which recognition is a part, no doubt. And then we got into the the, the principles of leadership and employee engagement and teams how that overall culture then expresses itself in every division and every team and and that was all of the book you're holding the best team wins so that's that's my journey it's been a ton of fun we published our first book in 2000 we just finished our 11th book we've sold you know over 1.5 million copies 30 languages chinese which is why we we're in beijing and it, it couldn't have been more fun more gratifying so Thanks for
0: asking. Chester, it's a great story, and I appreciate you kind of walking us through it because I think there's some lessons to be learned in it. And that is, I know you, as do millions around the world, as one of the you know, most recognized experts on recognition, right, and employee rewards. And now you have broadened your expertise with Adrian. You've written a book called The Best Team Wins. The book is phenomenal. It's so great, it's today's topic. What advice would you give the listener who's thinking their expertise is in one area, and 15 years later, it it broadens to another. Would you ever thought back in the late in Utah days of the carrot books, or recognition that you'd have have broadened your focus? What what have you learned that you could have short-circuited, or would you have short-circuited it? Because now your, your expertise is so much broader than that original niche. What are some of the lessons to be learned from your own brand expansion?
1: You know, uh, really insightful question, Scott. And and I think the advice I would give everyone and and what Adrian and I have tried to continue to do in our 20 year relationship is is to continue to be curious and humble. Uh, Curious in that you know that you don't know what you don't know. And so ask a lot of questions. Uh, Surround yourself with really smart people. You know, my my father was my my best friend and my mentor and he had a great sense of humor and say, you know, Chester, you never want to be the smartest guy in the room. He said, the good news for you is you can walk into pretty much any room. <laughs> so, you know, he also said I had a, a great face for radio. Um, my point is, is be curious, ask lots of questions, surround yourself with interesting people and have that humility to realize that you're never going to arrive, right? You're never going to know everything. You're never going to be the, the ultimate expert in anything. There are always yeah. things that you can learn and that pe- people can teach you. You know, I've had the good fortune to as I travel to various conferences is to associate with other speakers like you, you know, and other experts and be curious, introduce yourself, ask them about what they do. How does it tie in? It really is a very small world. And now with platforms like LinkedIn and Instagram and Facebook, it's very easy to connect with people literally all over the world. So my advice is stay curious and stay humble.
0: It's it's helpful because, as you know, I've just written my first book, Management Mess to Leadership Success. I'm delighted with the response. It sold almost 20,000 copies in the first six weeks. You were gracious enough to review it and endorse it on your massive LinkedIn channel. And as I'm now getting offers to write more books and I'm writing more, I'm kind of where you were about 15 years ago thinking, you know, where am I going to end up in terms of my brand expertise? And if I could be more deliberate about it. I think it'd be more helpful to my readers and my own audience. But your advice of curiosity and humility, I think is, is uh, insightful and, and a good reminder for me. Thank you. Well,
1: sure. You know, what's really interesting is now that you've, you, you, and by the way, 20,000 copies in six weeks, that's a hit. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Congratulations. That's Thank amazing. You. And you know, people always say, well, how do you, how do you write a, a you know, how do you get a New York Times bestselling book? And it starts with writing a great book. It's true really does. So the advice that I would give you is continue to hone your writing skills. You know, we we bring in a lot of editors, we bring in a lot of thinkers to take a look at our manuscripts and take a look at the theme and who's the audience, what's the message, why should I listen to you? and, And really, really get that expertise to make sure that more than anything, the final product of your book, you know, and this goes to anything, right? Whether it's going to be a blog or a podcast, That you're really, really proud of that final product, that it's the best you can make it. Because once you've got a great product, then everything else falls into place.
0: Well said, Chester. Let's talk now about the best team wins. I want to organize this interview into two parts. First, you have five disciplines around leading teams. I want to talk about that. And then at the end of your book, which is kind of a a style that you and Adrian follow in a lot of your books, you you share a toolkit with 101 ways to inspire your team. I want to have a bit of a a speed round and talk about 12 or 15 of those 101 ways. So take a swig of coffee or some root beer or something um, and get yourself ready. Talk a bit about why your latest passion research focused on the power of teamwork?
1: Well, you know, what's interesting is, as we took a deep dive on culture, you know, culture, it starts at the top with leaders, no no question, and then it filters down. Well, in any organization of any size, you know, if you've got um, an accounts receivable group or an R and D group or a sales group, they develop kind of their own cultures, their own interpretation of that culture. And we took a deep deep dive on teams because never before has it been more diverse in the workplace in the sense that it's multi-generational. it's it's much more global you have remote employees so you know the 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 five disciplines of great teams by Lancioni, which is a great book that you should read and i'm sure you have it's up here those basics of, of trust and mission and vision those are all still there what we wanted to look at were the these five dimensions that seem to jump up above and beyond what we traditionally think of as teams and we found it to be very helpful for team leaders to be really cognizant of and have some tools to deal with these new five dimensions.
0: So in the first part of your book, you talk about what you call the five disciplines of team leaders. Number one, understand generations. Two, manage to the one. Three, speed productivity. Four, challenge everything. And five, now don't forget your customers. Let's talk a bit about number one, this first discipline around understanding generations. You write in the book about the average kind of employment tenure, right? I mean, you and I are are, um, unusual for the new generation. We're about the same age. I've been at Franklin Covey for 23 years. My father before me was at Lockheed Martin for, gosh, close to 30 years. You were at OC Tanner for how long did you say? 19 years. 19 years. And this is now the exception. Walk us through what the research says are the longevities of these generations and why it's so different now with this newer generation?
1: Well, yeah, uh, you know, millennial, the millennial generation is now the largest generation in the workforce. And you look at the way that they grew up. And, and by the way, this is general information, right? Don't pigeonhole people. There, there are a lot of exceptions to the rule. This is sort of the basic trend. And, you know, they saw their parents stay at, at companies for 20, 25, 30 years. And then, you know, they got downsized, or they got merged, right. or their jobs got outsourced, and somebody, you know, did some funny business with their retirement funds, and, and all that loyalty to the company was not repaid. And you look at now, with the speed of business, with the, you know, mergers and acquisitions and transition, that compact between company and employee has really been broken. So this is a generation that says, look, I'm, I'm not going to get caught in that trap. Unemployment numbers are at all time lows. Uh, they're, They're smart, they're tech savvy, they've got their followership, they've got options. And so what's important to them is very different than what was important to our parents and even our generation, which was that loyalty factor. You go to a place and you build a career. Now it's all about gaining experience and expertise, learning and growing, making a difference, having impact. And once I feel like I'm not growing and learning anymore, I've got options. So managing a team that's very fluid, where you're going to have people stay for two, maybe three years before they have that itch to move, how do you engage them? How do you get the most out of them while they're there? And Scott, really importantly, is don't be offended when they leave. Yeah. you know, Our past generation was, if if you worked at a company for 20 years and you decided to leave, it was like a betrayal. Right. You know, that you'd gone to competition or you know, it was you were insulting. How brand, could you? Right? How
0: could you do that? Yeah.
1: Exactly. And, and by the way, and after you left, you got blamed for everything that went wrong to the next. So true. <laughs> so, so that is that is no longer true. So the way you onboard people, which was our segment on speed to productivity, how do you get them onboarded uh, much faster than, than traditionally? And how do you say goodbye? Because w- the way you say goodbye says a lot about your culture. And here's the other thing you've got to remember, with this very fluid, very mobile workforce, you, you may want to welcome them back. You want to say goodbye graciously and say, by the way, go out, learn some more, get some more expertise. You're always welcome back. It's not uncommon.
0: I think Chester, you've hit something that is so important for leaders, which you just said is, You didn't use the word revolving door, but you know, go out, get some more experience. We hope you come back. And by the way, refer some of your great friends into our organization while you're gone, right? Because we want to tap into your network as
1: well. Exactly, you know, you think about building your company brand. Well, who's ever there or who's ever not there or who's ever left? You want them to be ambassadors for your brand. Right, right. And have them say, hey, you know, I had a chance to, uh, an offer from Franklin Company. What would you say? Say, you know what, I was there for 23 years. Amazing. Yeah. Great people, absolutely take a look, as opposed to, you know, I really enjoyed my time there. You know what, it came time to leave, they got really funny with me, yeah. so, right. I don't know. You know, you never want that, you know, ickiness at the end.
0: Chester, debunk this for me. It seems to me my experience has been, for the last, you know, 50 plus years, it was a badge of honor to stay with a company for, you know, your entire career, or maybe if you were, hazardous. You had two jobs in, you know, 30 or 40 years. And when you went to go look at someone's resume, if they had four or five jobs, they were sort of toxic. You know, why were you bouncing around? It seems like now it's the exact opposite. If you've stayed one place for 25 years, you're kind of toxic. is because, you know, were you not entrepreneurial and are you too set in your ways? And now it's quite the norm to have someone in their 30s that's had five or six or seven jobs. That's kind of Absolutely. not just the norm, it's expected.
1: Well, and, and you know, even further, it says you've been there 25 years like nobody else wanted you. That's right, right. <laughs> you like You've crushed so me, you've crushed
0: crazy.
1: me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry about that. Now, I, I don't think that's a problem if, and here's the if, if you can show that you've done multiple uh, different things. Right. Like your career, frankly, Covey, right. you've done 15 different things.
0: Right. I've, had, right, I've had nine legitimate careers in 23 years here, it's true.
1: So you, you literally have nine different jobs. It's just the fact that you've been at the same company. Yeah. I'll tell you who does this really well is American Express. They actually encourage their employees every two to three years to look for something new, to look yeah. to move. Now, their organization is big enough that they have international opportunities. They've got different divisions, new product development and so on because they understand that if their people aren't moving and growing, they're, they're, gonna, they're gonna lose them. To your point though, I had a friend call me from the UK and he just made a move, he'd been in a company for a long time, made a move, had been there just over a year. It wasn't quite what he had hoped and he got a better offer. And he said, I'm worried that on my resume, it'll look like I'm job hopping too quickly. And my advice to him was what you just said. I said, do you know what, buddy? Nobody cares anymore, yeah. like nobody cares. Right. They want you, they're pitching you, by the way, it's not like you're jumping or doing whatever. They want you because of your talent. You're not particularly happy where you are. Go be happy, grow and develop, and oh, by the way, it's for more money. You know, don't worry about perception. Go, learn, develop, have success. Nobody cares if you've had five jobs in five years. Literally, nobody cares.
0: Chester, let's go back to these disciplines around leading teams. The first one, understanding generations. You, you, you reference a SHRM report in here where it says millennials' top three complaints about older workers, meaning you and me, um, <laughs> that, that we're resistant to change lack recognition of their efforts, and that we micromanage them. And then conversely, the older workers, you and me again, top three complaints about millennials is that they have a poor work ethic, they have informal behavior and language, and inappropriate dress. Now, I found these to be quite true and relevant, but I want you to weigh in. How important are these generational differences? There's a whole cottage industry around, you know, understanding and managing for Defy, perhaps, different generations in the workplace. Are the differences that big? Has, like most things, the industry made them bigger than they are? What have you found have been the important things to address when it comes to managing generational differences in a team environment?
1: You know, you asked such great questions. <laughs> and that was a multi-pronged question. Let me see if I can dissect it for you. You know, it is really interesting that these sort of they seem almost trivial, like uh, inappropriate dress. Well, the whole world is so much more casual, right? And yeah. it really is just kind of knowing your environment and setting your expectations. You know, you say, well, they do this that bothers me, well, they do this that bothers me. So you know what you do? You, you, you have the conversation. And you say, look, here are my expectations. Because here, here's the fact that uh, I know to be true. Every generation's job is to drive the previous generation crazy. <laughs> I mean, that's gone, right? We, we drove our parents crazy with the way we dressed and the music we listened to and the language we used. And ever will it be so. And one of the things you touched on that I think is very true is we still have much more in common than we have that differentiates us, right? Um, when we looked at top motivators, you know, we created this really cool online assessment, a motivators assessment. 60,000 people took it. Nice database to draw from. You know what motivates both uh, baby boomers and uh, millennials and Gen X? Impact, they want to make a difference, right? It expresses itself a little differently. And those are the nuances of generation, right? We all want to make a difference, right? Bottom line at the end of the day, guess what? We all want to be happy in our work. We want to feel like we're valued, that what we did mattered, that we made a difference. And when we made a difference, somebody said, thank you. Now on that recognition piece, do millennials on average need more affirmation? Yeah, of course they do. Why? Because as baby boomers, we raised them and we told them they were great. Everything they did was great, right? So why are we surprised that when they come into the workplace that more frequent touches and more affirmations are appropriate? And by the way, it's very appropriate to when somebody does something well to say thank you, to, to you know, recognize that accomplishment, to reinforce that right behavior. Is the cadence a little different? Well, sure. You know, it always will be. And that gets into another dimension in the book is manage to the one. You know, know their stories, know what it is that motivates them, what they're passionate about, and adjust your leadership accordingly. Just to wrap up, I think to explain everything you just said there, old school kind of has the attitude that we treat everybody the same because that's fair. Mm -hmm. New school is we treat everybody fairly and differently. And I, I love that differentiation. You can treat people differently and still treat people fairly. Don't get stuck in that rut that this is the way we dress, this is the way we talk, this is the way we act. The world is too big a place with cultural differences and language differences and, and you know, gender differences and, and all those things that come into play, and generational differences, to say, look, I'm going to treat everybody the same because that's fair. That's, that's just foolish.
0: So Chester, you... Your positivity and energy is contagious. I'm going to harness it now for the second half of this interview, because at the end of your book, beyond these five disciplines that you've written with um, your colleague Adrian, you offer these 101 ways to inspire your team. I read them all, and I picked out kind of my favorite 12 uh, uh, after I narrowed it down from about 25. I'm going to pitch you one and ask you if you'll give me about a minute on each. I actually encourage our listeners, our podcast listeners, and our our viewers today, take out some notes right now because this is a super powerful part of this book that you're getting from the famed Chester Elton. This will transform the way our viewers and listeners lead their teams in the next about 10 minutes or so. You ready, you buckled up?
1: Yes, no pressure. (laughs)
0: 101 ways to inspire your team. I'm gonna now see if you really wrote this book. This will be a good test, okay? (laughs) Um, Number two, learn their stories. You talk a bit about the example of Norman Schwarzkopf and the platoons. What's that idea about called learn their stories?
1: Well, you know, Schwarzkopf was great. He says, you know, you look out and you see the sea of faces, you've got to break it down to eventually, it comes down to that one soldier, know their stories. And that's, that's so key. Do you know their background? Do you know where they came from? Do you know where they want to be two to three years from now? Do you know what their passions are? I know it takes time. Uh, good leaders do it sometimes. Extraordinary leaders do it all the time. And when you think about the best team leaders you had, I guarantee you they knew your story.
0: Yeah.
1: They knew your background. They knew what really got you excited to get up and come to work in the morning. It's a great tip for great leaders.
0: In fact, Chester, in each of these 101 tips, you share a, story, a short story or concept and then you actually share an action. Here's what to do. So for example, on number two, learn their stories, the action is specifically, over the next week, sit down with each of your direct reports for about 15 minutes and learn their story. Ask about the person's background, their hopes, their goals for the future. Take notes. I, I, I couldn't agree more with you. So well said. Let's keep moving. Number three, find their flow. A lot of people have heard about flow, they've read about flow, but not everybody is, is intimate with that, with that concept. Describe what the concept of flow means and why is it important in leading a team?
1: Yeah, you know, I got this concept actually from a, a book that I love called Boys in the Boat. Did you read that book by any chance? No. So it's this spectacular story of the 1939 Olympic rowing team yes, from I've the of Yes, I've heard University of this. Of and they talk about when you get in the zone as a rower, they call it the flow. Everything just kicks in and it yeah. becomes effortless. You know, rowing is incredibly physically taxing. When you get into the flow though, the boat just glides. And, and if you talk to rowers and, and, and athletes and even musicians, you know, you get into, the, sometimes call it the zone. It's getting into that flow. So it, it really is trying to figure out how are you getting everybody in the right seat, rowing in the right rhythm, You know, when you get that team that just really comes together, get that flow. Make sure everybody is doing their role in a way that meshes with everyone else. If you think about some of the best teams you've been on, everybody knew their role. Everybody, we weren't in competition with each other. We were all rowing in the same direction. We We got into that flow and work was just a joy. You know, customer service was high. Customers just started to come in. It's, it's, it's hard to get there. Once you get there though, you'll never forget it. Get in the flow. It's so and, and
0: true. I mean, as you were describing it, visually I was thinking, mine would have been my team most recently, in a previous role here, Todd Music, Jennifer Coons, and James McDermott. And there were others peripherally, but we would get into a room, and I'm sure they would disagree. They probably thought it was chaos, right? <laughs> but I felt like each of us had that synchronicity and flow where it was not just fun and enjoyable, But it was easy, even conflict was easy because you all had sort of
1: a a, a dedication to make it work. And it's incredibly energizing. You know, you're doing all this work, and and, and I'm sure you've had this happen where all of a sudden you look at the clock and you go, oh my gosh, it's eight o'clock at night. Right. You know, time just flows.
0: Yeah, number six, you call it better allocate your time. I'm passionate about this because to quote our founder, Hiram Smith, we all have the same amount of time. Same amount as our grandfather did. And our great-great-grandfather, how we dedicate it, allocate it, is so important. Expand on um, allocating Grand your time.
1: Yes, and, and, and I love that, allocate your time, because I love it when people say, well, we've got to make time for that. Well, you can't. <laughs> Nobody can make time. <laughs> Everybody gets the same amount of time. So it's a discipline, and great leaders have that discipline about allocating your time. Making sure you've got time to spend with your people one-on-one. Make sure you've got time to get involved in the projects that are important. Make sure that you, 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 t- you take that time and find the time to, to write a little handwritten note, to improve yourself. You know, I I've I, I started to do some executive coaching now, which I really, really enjoy. And I say, look, you've got to take time for yourself. Well, this is very much in your bailiwick, you know, to sharpen the saw. You know, make sure you, you find time for yourself to make sure that you've got uh, replenished so that you can give, give to your team. So that discipline around time is a really important one particularly in the crush of business today, right? You, you, you never have enough time to get everything done. So make sure you've prioritized it, make sure that you've allocated times in those areas for yourself, for your team, for your customers. And there's no question, it, it, it's a discipline. You know,
0: Chester, I was in a meeting yesterday with Sean Covey, who of course is the president of Franklin Covey's education division, the author of the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Teens and about five other books. Sean Covey has sold on his own about 10 million copies. Sean is re-releasing his dad's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, this next April, April of 2020. It's the 30th anniversary. That book has sold 30 million copies. And the company is re-releasing it with Sean Covey, uh, not as a co-author, but adding insights and modern day applications to each of the seven habits. And yesterday, Sean Covey and I were meeting with our chairman, Bob Whitman, talking about what Sean's adding to the seven habits. You know, how do you improve on the seven habits? You really don't. And Sean was saying in the meeting that of all of our own assessments on people's uh, effectiveness with the seven habits, what is consistently ranked the hardest and least effective is habit three. Of course, put first things first, right? Is How do you organize your day, your time around your most important Priorities, so our research validates yours. Why do you think it is so difficult for leaders, leaders of teams to deliberately allocate time on what generally are the most important roles,
1: contributions they have to make? Why is that so hard? You know, I think it's just so easy to get distracted. You know, your phone is constantly buzzing, right? Uh, People coming and going. I really do think that smartphones uh, have made uh, us more, given us more access to smart stuff. I don't think they're actually making us all that smarter because of the constant interruptions. And I think that's the biggest thing that that leaders need to do in their discipline is have that, you know, non-digital time where li- literally you, you, you shut your phone off. Don't yeah. put it on silent because it'll yeah. vibrate, right? And it'll distract you. Yeah. And it's, it's trying to, let me put it this way. I think people right now pride themselves on being able to multitask. I think very, very, very few people do that well. And so that ability to put first things first, as you say so eloquently, and to allocate that time and concentrate to get what's important done first things first, is just hard because of all those digital distractions. But what do you think it is? I'm curious. I, I think you're you're you're
0: right. I mean, I think the my chairman, who's my boss, has asked me deliberately to stop being so distracted in his meetings with my phone because it's kind of my world, right? I mean, it's 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 it, it is my world. It's kind of what I live in, and I need to be much more deliberate around not just putting my phone down but not bringing my phone into the meeting. I'm leaving this interview and going to a 90-minute meeting with our president Paul Walker on your sort of advice right now. I'm going to leave my phone out of the room as I think it will help my brand with him to be much more focused cuz I am also easily distracted. I think you've nailed, I think the phone is the vast majority of the problem. Good,
1: good. Well, we agree. Uh, Excellent. (laughs) Thanks for validating me.
0: Let's keep going. Number 23. I skipped over 15 great ones. Practice extreme openness.
1: Yes. You know, again, old school, new school. Old school is, you know, I'm going to keep the information tight. It's on a need-to-know basis. And, Scott, you're never going to need to know. This extreme openness is is such a good practice for team leaders for, for a couple of reasons. One is you're asking people for help. Right, you're saying Here, here's where we are, here's where we're going, here's the situation, give me your ideas. And secondly, it, it, it's much more genuine. People are going to find out eventually anyway, right? With all the access that you've yes, got right. with Glassdoor and right. you know, in, in, in the, uh, just in, in the business world as people talk. So being extremely open and sharing that information and inviting people into the solution is just so smart and it's so easy. I know for some leaders it's hard to let go of that because somehow you feel like you know, the old saying, information is power. If I have that information, it makes me powerful. Now the new school is really, the more you give that away, the more power you get back. And so this extreme openness is just look, I'm gonna be really candid. Here's where we are, here's where we're going. I need your help, let's get there together. You know, Chester, you and I live in a world of associating with
0: very wise people. You, you're yeah. wiser than I am. And I have uh, many wise quotes to attribute to Dr. Covey. But I also have one that I learned from a former colleague, Rebecca Hessian. She's a consultant, a speaker, a TED speaker in Indiana, and uh, a long colleague of Franklin Covey's. And Rebecca Hessian said something to me once that has really changed my whole life and trajectory. She said, we think they don't know. They do. And and it's so empowering, is it not? Because everybody knows your messes, your insecurities. They probably could guess your credit score to the closest 15 points (laughs) and your GPA. So without becoming like a walking confessional, there's just some great vulnerability and authenticity and just being extremely candid and open as appropriate for your environment. Because if she's true, and I think she is, Rebecca says, you think they don't know, they do. And you know, think about it. Doesn't that take a lot of
1: pressure off of you? It so does. It's so liberating. It's so liberating. You think they don't know when they do. You're right, and they can uh, guess your credit score. As long as they can't guess the pin number on your ATM card, I think we're good.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Increasingly, they probably can. Number 38,
1: spark healthy debates. Yes, you know, I I love this one. And we did a a really interesting case study in the book on Bell Helicopter. Um, Harmony is overrated. It really is. Now, having said that, you, you don't want people so conflicted that it becomes personal. One, one of the rules I love about healthy debate is you challenge the idea, not the person. And I, I, I want to say that again. In healthy debate, you challenge the idea, not the person. As soon as it gets personal, yeah. everybody shuts down. Right. So these rules of engagement, I think, are so important. You know, every idea has merit. The best ideas win. Another one that I love is uh, we laugh, but not at each other. Right? We don't laugh at someone else's expense. And once you get that idea where Amy Edmondson from Harvard talks about psychological safety, when you create that psychological safety in debate, where it really is a debate, we're trying to get to the best solution, and I'm, I'm safe that you won't laugh at me, then really good things happen. And look, you've got to have conflict. You've got to have that debate. That's where the best ideas come from. There's no question. I'm gonna skip a few because our time
0: is tight. Two more. Number 51, over-communicate why. You talk about how it takes you know, multiple touch points to communicate. You and I were talking offline before this interview where I said, you know, when I read this, I had a bit of a brain flash, which for me was a brain flash. I'm sure it was you know, rudimentary to all of our listeners and viewers, and that was if in marketing, of which I'm the you know, former chief marketing officer here, here at Franklin Covey, if we believe it takes you know, eight or nine or 10 times for a prospective client to see our message why would you not think it would take eight or nine times for an internal employee to also understand the message be it the strategy the goal their role the mission the why talk about why you are so passionate around
1: over communicating the why well and it comes back to all the things we talked about you know different generations want to be communicated in different ways right and you're exactly right we we do all this work to to market to our customers we should be doing more work to communicate to our employees. And so I I love this idea of saying, look, everybody should be able to tell you what they do and how they do it. The why, that's the emotional connection to work. That's where productivity engagement, really sparks. So how are you doing that? You know, newsletters, town meetings, one-on-ones, you know, emails, texts, video chats. I mean, think of every possible way you can communicate to your employees and make sure that that why we do what we do. And not just the statement, how it impacts, how it's impacting our, our colleagues, how it's impacting our company, how it's impacting our communities, our customers, the world, right? That, that noble cause that we all want to be a part of something bigger than ourselves, right? And the more you communicate that and the more you embed that into your employees, the more engaging they're going to be. And again, don't just say, hey, we put up the posters. You know, what more do you want from us, right? Sure, put up the posters make sure you're doing everything else as well. And that you're communicating in ways that are meaningful to your employees. You, you get their minds, that's great. You get their hearts, now you're off to the races. Chester, the book is exceptional. I, I recommend all of our listeners and viewers to
0: pick up a copy, The Best Team Wins, if nothing less, just for the last half. These 101 tips are so practical. Challenge each other. Draft a rallying cry. Rotate leadership. Reach out to virtual. Speak last. One that I love is 63. It's the last one I'll share. Is give great feedback. It's something I'm super passionate about. What's been your experience as to why leaders who lead high-performing teams, what is it they do when it comes to giving great feedback? Well,
1: here's, here's what they do that I think is extraordinary, is they make sure that in any given day, they're having positive interactions with their people, right? So often as leaders, we like to point out what's going wrong because with leaders, we fix things. And so if we're the guys that fix things, what are we looking for? We're looking for things that are going wrong. The exceptional leaders also take note of all the things that are going right, right? And they make sure that they're giving feedback on that. So that when you have to have the tougher conversations, and this is very much Stephen Covey, right? You've got this bank of goodwill. So that when you and I have to have that tough conversation, I know you're not beating me up just because you can, you're the boss, I'm not. It's you're really coaching me up to be better. You've realized and you've complimented me on, you've thanked me for all this great work I've done over all this big period of time, and now you're saying, hey, we need to talk about this, we need to do that, we need to make sure this doesn't happen again, or we need to change the way we're doing this, and so on. It's being coachable. And if I've got that bank of goodwill, I can be very candid in how I coach you. I can be very candid in my feedback because we've got a meaningful relationship. It doesn't damage the way we work together. It doesn't change our relationship. If anything, it enhances it. Good leaders give great feedback, not just on what's going wrong, especially on what's going right. Does that ring true to you? It does, and I love
0: my dad but had you been like my dad or my older brother, I'd be so much more successful right now and I love my father, but your energy is contagious. I know why you are booked around the world nonstop. I know why you have like nearly a quarter of a million LinkedIn followers. Tell us what's next for you. Are there some books on the horizon? People who are finding your work compelling, how do they get in touch with you? Talk a bit about what's next for Chester and Adrian.
1: Well, thanks so much, Scott. And by, by the way, I, I enjoy your energy, too. It's, it, it is contagious. And this has been the most fun interview I've done all day. I just want you to <laughs> thanks know. Thanks a lot. Um,
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> anyway, what's next on the horizon? We just finished our 11th book with HarperCollins' business. Yep. It's called Leading with Gratitude, The Eight Best Practices of Extraordinary Leaders That Leads to Extraordinary Results. And I'll tell you, the timing of this book, Scott, we're, we're really focused on is I really believe the world needs more gratitude. You know, um, you look at the online bullying, you look at the, all the negative news feed you get, you look at the, the political discourse that's just so vitriolic and so nasty that you've got to step back and realize that, you know what, it, there's never been a more amazing time to be alive. We've never been more privileged. We've never been more, more fortunate to be where we are. And these extraordinary leaders that we got to interview, shared with us their best practices. Well, first off we debunk the myths and then we share the best practices around, you know, assuming positive intent that people come to work to do a good job. Let's be grateful for that. And, and gratitude for us is, is an extension of all the work we did on recognition. I think recognition sometimes can appear a little transactional. Mm-hmm. It's the certificate, it's the thing. I think gratitude, and I think that's important by the way, I think gratitude takes it to that next level. I really am grateful for our friendship. I'm grateful for your sacrifices. I'm grateful for the difference that you make. To build those really good, positive relationships that flow. You know, of all the data we've looked at, and we have a database of almost a million engagement surveys now, is that when you are happy and engaged at work, you are 150% more likely to be happy and engaged in your personal life. And so the third part of our book is, take it home, apply it to your personal lives. You know, work is life and life is work. And the more we can introduce this spirit of gratitude, this idea that we lead from positivity, we lead with gratitude, the better off our teams are going to be, the more productive they're going to be, the more engaged they're going to be, the better it's going to mean for our businesses and, and our customers. And more than that, how it flows into our families and our communities. So we're we're very passionate about our new work. It comes out in March, which I'm delighted it comes out before your reissue of Seven Habits. <laughs> and I think the timing uh, hopefully will be very good and it will make a difference for a lot of people.
0: Hey, Chester.
1: Yes? I'm grateful for your friendship. As I am for yours, Scott. You know, I am delighted that over 15 years we have not lost track of each other. It's true. Thank you so much for inter- interviewing me and inviting me to your podcast. It it really is a joy and a pleasure to be around such positive and such good people. So I am grateful for you too.
0: Hey, the feeling is mutual. You've been a great friend and collaborator and champion of the Franklin Covey family for for many years and decades to come, I hope. And we'll certainly send out an invitation to your team to invite you back on when the new book comes out in the spring.
1: Excellent. Well, and lastly, if you want any of this great information, just go to our website, thecultureworks.com. We got all kinds of tips and tricks. Follow us on LinkedIn, we give away a lot of stuff. Our goal is to make a difference and make people just happier at work, happier in their life. So well thanks said. so much, Scott.
0: I highly recommend you connecting or following Chester on LinkedIn. You do a great, is it almost weekly book review? Is it weekly? Every Friday
1: we do a great yes. little book review, which means I'm reading maniacally all week. It's right. been a great exercise right. for me. It's... And of course we featured your book, You know, The Management Mess, which yeah. was brilliant. Yeah. And I can't tell you how excited, how just really excited I am for your success. Well-deserved, well-earned.
0: Chester, you're a great friend to have. I, I, I have as a must never miss watching your book review on LinkedIn on Friday. Can't recommend it enough. Chester Elton on LinkedIn. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you back in about six months to have you back on for your next book. I look forward to it. Take care, Scott. Thank you, sir. Thanks for joining us. And our time is up. We'll see you next week with a new guest on Franklin Covey's on Leadership Series. If you're not subscribing, visit franklincovey.com. Click on the On Leadership tab. It's a free weekly newsletter that comes out every Tuesday morning around 8 o'clock Eastern Time with an interview just like today's, as well as a downloadable Franklin Covey tool and a blog article authored by me about the topic of the week. And you also can consume this podcast on all your favorite podcast platforms SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, Franklin Covey, you name it. We'll see you here next week with a new guest on leadership.